Episode one, the first to close, the last to open. Do you remember the last time you listened to live music? You bought tickets to a show, you waited in line, maybe you even showed up early to catch the opener. Or maybe you showed up late so you'd miss it. I remember the last show I went to before the COVID-19 pandemic shut them all down. For me, it was the LCD sound system concert at the Greek. The energy was absolutely palpable. You could feel it in the air. None of us knew it was gonna be the last live music we'd be hearing for well over a year. Bands started canceling tours as soon as early March of 2020, well before any of the large scale shutdowns were being mandated. And now, even as restaurants are starting to open up indoor dining and offices are starting to welcome people back, most music venues are still closed. The first major festival of the year won't be until late July, and most artists aren't planning to tour until the end of the summer at the earliest. Event venues, concerts, conferences, stand-up comedy, movie theaters. They were the first to close, and they'll be the last to open. And for stadiums, arenas, and large halls, they lost a ton of money. Over 30 billion lost just in concert revenue. But for independent venues, a lot of them lost everything. Threadgills in Austin, Texas, Rebar in Seattle, Slims in San Francisco. At least 300 venues across the country have all been closed for good as a result of COVID-19. The heart of business is the relationships between a company and its customers. But how does the heart keep beating for small venues when you literally can't have live music? That's the story we're telling today. My name's LB Harvey, and in this episode of Heart of Business, it's a story about how a bunch of local bar owners, booking agents, and bona fide rock stars kept live music on life support for over a year, putting on the biggest virtual festival of 2020 and saving thousands of local stages across the country. Here's Matt Klassen with the story. The last show my band played was January 30th, 2020. We're just a local rock band, all in our 30s, long past any dreams of making it big. But we used to play small venues around town maybe once a month. We all have day jobs, but for a lot of our friends who played their last live show around the same time, that was it. The end. Their dream deferred for what we all thought would be a couple months, max. A lot of musicians I know took to the internet, TikTok, Twitch, YouTube, to try to make ends meet. Or probably just to stay relevant. But the venues I used to play, they went dark. But behind the scenes, they were working on something. I talked to some guys in the industry I know. Hey, I'm Patrick Wilson. I uh, run Head Up Artist Relations for NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association. My day job is I'm a talent buyer for a music venue called White Eagle Hall in Jersey City, um, which is just over the water from Manhattan. I'm Stephen Chilton. Uh, I promote concerts under the name Psycho Steve Presents and own the a music venue in Phoenix, the Rebel Lounge, is sort of a 300-person rock and roll club. And for the last year, I'm one of the founders and vice president of NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association. NEVA started up as you know a number of independent venues across the country were learning that, you know, our livelihoods and the venues were at stake. Um, and so, you know, we organized, um, started with, you know, just a phone call with a handful of people. And then fast forward a year later, um, it's probably about, you know, 2,500 independent music and comedy clubs um, that are part of Neva 
before even the shutdowns, when it was first starting, uh, when shows were first starting to get canceled and after South by Southwest got canceled, Reverend Moose, who runs a marketing firm Marauder and runs independent venue week, threw out this Zoom invite to like the hundred or so venues from that were part of independent venue week and said, let's get on a Zoom and talk about what we're all seeing. And we got on a Zoom on a Thursday and we basically did that call every day for the last year, every Thursday. The first call was kind of before most cities shut down. It was at March 12th when some things were starting to shut down, but not everything. And then the second call was after everything had shut down. And, you know, we were just, everyone's freaking out. No one was talking about what it was going to mean for small venues or promoters or concerts. Everything, you know, at that time, everyone was talking about the NBA and the NFL and Coachella and all these like huge, massive things. And no one was talking about, well, all us little guys are going to be shut down too. How screwed did you think the whole industry might be? Once South by, you know, shut down, that was sort of the epicenter of, oh, <laughs> like what? So that was a very pivotal point um, when there was rumblings that that was going to shut down. And then it got real. The start was, we have no idea what to do. We need, the only way we can do it is if by getting together and organizing because we don't have any solutions. And this is when the first stimulus bill was going through and like we were not in it in any way. Like the original PPP program did not work for promoters and venues. You know, that was all about keeping people employed. Well, if you're completely shut down, how do you do that? And so that first stimulus happened so fast and we were like completely not thought of. Like our industry, industries like ours were not thought of. The rooms that are part of, of, of Neva range from 50 cap, you know, walk up only type venue in New Orleans with no advanced ticket sales that are doing entirely local events, um, you know, to places like Red Rocks and stuff. So we range, you know, a ton. Um, but the, the bread and butter of, of independent venues and, um, you know, are these local rooms that are, you know, probably between 200 to, you know, 1,000 or 1,500 cap you know, the smaller rooms obviously survive almost entirely off of, you know, local musicians and non-touring bands. My job is fine. Like I, you know, I'm just fine. I was able to figure some stuff out, but cutting 40 bar staff and, you know, 30 crew and stuff. I mean, we were cutting, I mean, almost a hundred people that relied on us and to, you know, make that call to them and say, or that's, Hey, we're we're done for the for the next what we thought month, and then six months, and then a year. Um, that takes its toll for sure. Again, I can only speak for for me, but um, and I'm sure Stephen said similar things. And I've been giving refunds this whole time. So, like anyone who's asked for a refund for a postponed or canceled show, we've given every refund to everyone that's asked. Um, and so that's been good for us. Uh, Key. A lot of people just financially were not able to like they literally, you know, South by Southwest didn't do refunds. And like, you know, for a lot of producers and promoters and venues, smaller venues that that's been a big issue for a lot of people is not being able to get refunds. So we were in a lucky spot that we were able to do that for all our shows. Anyone who's wanted one. Turning to Neva, you know, on a, on a different sort of 
different side, fan support was the, the what got us noticed and what got Congress and Washington paying attention is we did this huge letter writing campaign, like go to save our, we, we launched the save our stages campaign, a campaign I helped come up with, uh, on our marketing team that came up with that name and that hashtag. And, you know, we got this form on our website that would send emails and we got over 2 million people to write an email to their congressmen and senators. And, you know, I remember at one point we were, you know, at like 900,000 emails. And we were like, if we could get another 100,000 emails sent, we could do a press release that we sent a million emails. And then the big, the big giant restaurant association came out with a press release that they had sent 50,000 emails to Congress. And we're like, what? You represent every restaurant in America and you got 50,000 emails? We were like, maybe a million would be interesting. You know, we could do a release around a million. And, you know, that's all we heard was like Congress hurt, like, it was so grassroots. Everyone knew we had, there was no astro, there was no money. It was just every venue and promoters sharing the Save Our Stages, you know, last May and June. And all the fans being like, yeah, like we care about this and got really loud and we got a lot of attention in Congress. You know, when you're a congressman and you're getting 50,000, you know, 50,000 emails to your inbox you notice that, you know? And so that's what it was all the fan support that just showed that we mattered and we cared and Congress got the message and was like, Oh wow. Like this is something, this is an issue that we need to pay attention to. Why couldn't these independent venues make it on their own without this kind of broad base of support? The the simplest thing way to describe it is, you know, while many venues did take up the, you know, government assistance with PPP, PPP loans specifically were not made for an industry like us because you needed to spend 70% of the loan with staffing and we didn't have a way to staff. You know, even if we were doing a live stream, we just couldn't spend that much money on on our staff. So um, it was just not, you know, for, for an industry that went to from 100% to 0%. I mean, in some of the best touring years we've had was, I mean, 2020 was going to be one of the biggest touring years and best, most successful years for a lot of rooms across the country. Um, and because of that, you know, venues were starting to do some capital, ready, getting ready for capital improvements. And, you know, we're looking at opening the number of, you know, people I know that were working on their second had just put a down payment on their second room or opening an amphitheater or something. Um, and this hit. So, um, you know, the, the, while again, a lot of venues did take PPP, it wasn't a sustainable form of aid for most rooms, um, because of the need to, uh, to spend it on primarily staffing needs. You kind of became a lobbyist, right? Like, how hard was it to get these legislators on the same page? Like, obviously, you got bipartisan support. You had bipartisan grassroots support. Like, what was the process like to people kind of observing from the outside? Uh, yeah, I mean, the first part started with that letter writing campaign. I mean, we hired a big lobbyist and they're like, look, no one knows that you're understands your issue or your industry. You're going to have to make a lot of noise to show that people care. And we did. So that was sort of step one was showing that. And then the other one is, we had a, our lobbying committee and we're in all 50 states, you know, we're in all 50 states and in every major city, there were independent venues that got behind Neva. I mean, it took us a week to sign up 
members in all 50 states. We were reaching out in every state to our representatives. This wasn't a movement that was driven out of LA or New York or Texas or something like this was everywhere. Everyone had, you know, a relationship with their congressmen, their senators, their people. You know, I knew Greg Stanton, our congressman, when he was, you know, mayor of Phoenix. I knew Ruben Gallego when he was a state representative before he was in Congress. And it's like, I don't know a lot of people in Washington, but I know our people. And that was the same for like every, you know, there was venue owners and everywhere that was like, oh yeah, my former mayor is now our senator or our, you know, it's not a coincidence. Our big champion, our first big champion was uh, John Cornyn, very conservative Republican out of Texas. South by Southwest canceling. Music is a big deal in Austin. There's a lot of honky tonk bars in Texas. They understand the impact music has, you know, has on the economy. And, you know, we, him and Amy Klobuchar, Democrat out of Minnesota, got together and did the Save Our Stages Act. But that was because of grassroots across, we were able to have that old school grassroots get on the phone and talk to our representatives and talk to their staffs and be loud and annoying. You Where'd the idea for Save Our Stages Fest first come about? Like you had the Save Our Stages legislation that was being written. Where'd the idea come from for this virtual festival? You know, not too far after we started the campaign in March and the organization, um, there was, you know, a call from Lior Cohen um, from YouTube and uh, to one of our our founding members, um, Stephen Sternshine, and they had a call and and Lior basically asked, you know, what can YouTube do to help? Um, and it was at that point where sort of the... They, they put their hand out and said, we want to do anything we can. Um, and, you know, it was quickly after that, that um, this idea to do a fundraiser to tide people over um, and raise as much money as we can and save our stages fest started. YouTube was a huge partner on the whole thing. They helped us produce it from, you know, it wasn't just we streamed it on YouTube, like their, their artist team, Allie and Matt and Natalie Stone and just a ton of the people at YouTube were, you know, super behind it and held our hands and were like, we're like, we don't know how to do it. And they're like, do this. And we're like, okay. Uh, when we started booking a festival, it was a, a pretty small team of us. Um, and, um, and a couple of people on the YouTube side, we had a specific group of artists that we were looking at um, and tried to be as diverse as possible. But um but it was quick. I mean, it was a quick, we were asking for a lot, to be honest. You know, we were asking people to, to, you know, come into a live room and, you know, test and, um, and we did every, you know, as safe as we possibly could and do it for free. I mean, we obviously paid all their crew. That was a big part of, for us. We wanted to make sure we were paying crew and, and band members and whatnot, but the artists themselves, you know, were donated their time to us, which we were eternally grateful for. Yeah, it was it was a lot of work, and me and Patrick are part of the core team that did it all. Patrick did most of the booking of it with hand in hand with YouTube's artist relations, and we got a lot of great artists. And you know, our biggest holdup wasn't artists not wanting to do it; it was logistics of there were lots of artists that were like our bands in different cities. We can't. I mean, this was still you know when we were planning this last July and August. It was like the heat of COVID, height of COVID, and like. People didn't want to travel. Um, you know, Brittany Howard ended up driving herself to Nashville 
to do it. So, cause she really wanted to do it and her band was in Nashville and she didn't want to fly. So she just drove, I, I don't know how far she drove, but uh, I don't know where she lives, but she drove herself to Nashville to do it. Cause she really wanted to do it. I'm in is the best room in Nashville, in my opinion. It sounds amazing. It has a lot of history. It's just a special place because this is where my family would drive to to come see me play. And, and they know that this is a special place, a special moment to be performing. Reba McIntyre and The Roots and, uh, you know, we, we The Roots were interesting because we had to get all our COVID plan through. Uh, NBC had to approve it because of uh, their their bubble with The Tonight Show at the time. And so which was good because it forced us to like work out our, you know, our COVID plan, uh, you know, but we had to have that level of detail. And it's like, we sent them our first plan and they're like, this isn't detailed enough. Like we need, like, this is the outline. We need like the details, you know? And it was like, who is, who's doing testing? Who's doing, you know, it, it was good though, because it forced us to work on it. I mean, cause we, we were serious about it too. So, you know, it was all the logistics, the roots wanted to do it and they needed to know it was safe you know, and we needed to know it was safe. So a lot of headaches, but it was fun. So Miley was probably our biggest success, you know, that. That's Miley as in Miley Cyrus. Miley was a really big get for us. And it was our last artist that we had, we booked. Um, and, you know, we really felt like we needed, we had a great lineup put together, but we definitely felt like we needed a, you know, one more, headlining artist um, to really pop and you know she was you know we talked to her team and she was out in you know New York filming something at the time with uh, Dua Lipa I think um, she was at a venue up there and so we got in a call and they were like would she is it fine if she just sort of said a couple words and filmed it for you guys and <laughs> And I was like, you know, I'm sitting on the other side and I was like, I just know. I mean, yes, of course that's fine. Like, that would be fine. But that's not what I wanted. Um, that's not what we wanted. But, you know, we were delicate, you know, it was a delicate balance because, you know, here we are with her team and, and they've been very generous to us and she's been very generous to us. And um, we were absolutely asking for a, a favor, you know, I mean, this whole thing are artists doing us favors um, that we're grateful for. So. And I said, yeah, that's that would be amazing, but that's <laughs> that's not what we. I mean, what we'd want is we would love for her to be on in a room, and you know, management team thought for ten seconds and goes, okay, let's you know, we'll get back to you, and and they got back to us like it's probably four days before our deadline, and said, yeah, she'll do it in L.A. and and you know, can you get us the whiskey go go? And the only out, you know, the only positive thing of the pandemic when you're trying to shoot these things in venues and as sad as it is it's like for the most part most of these rooms didn't have any holds on them um so we were lucky enough that you know we could usually get any room that that we wanted at that point and so um and so from like you know from the call to the to her being on set was probably you know th four days and um you know we got in there and we had a uh you know, the, the band was in early and we were in early and I was on set. I was in LA. So I was on set with all the LA shows and, and we had a, a scare at the test. You know, we were worried about putting anyone in that obviously that was tested positive and it was a false 
positive, um, luckily. Um, but there was, you know, for a couple hours, there was a chance that we, she didn't come and we didn't do the shoot and the venue wasn't available. She wasn't available the next day and we had already announced the lineup <laughs> a couple of days before, which was confirmed with Miley, of course. And it wasn't, you know, there was, um, and so there was, you know, I lost, I mean, four pounds of sweat probably in those two hours and it wasn't the LA heat. And, um, but then sure enough, everything was fine and it was a negative and she comes in and she must've, you know, I think she rehearsed, she had never rehearsed the covers. I don't think the band was rehearsing it and she gets on stage and does like two takes of zombie by the cranberries and, and crushes both of them and um and you know does a couple of their songs and then it was their biggest success story because she that song ended up going viral that video version of it and then she ended up putting it on spotify as a save our stages live song and put it on her last release and and she really got us a ton of views and a ton of donations and stuff so um i gotta tell you i was sitting there you know, in the whiskey. And again, it was our last, our second to last shoot. We were shooting the roots a couple of days later at, at the Apollo, but it was our last shoot in Los Angeles. And so I was sitting there and I, it was emotional, man. I cried. I was like, it was, there were so many things hitting me like, Oh, you know, I'm lucky that I got to see a bunch of music in the middle of the pandemic when no one's seen it. I'm lucky that, you know, we had such a, pop star in front of us do this and she was just amazing and i it just was a rush over me where i was like um what am i doing but it was great a lot of it was boring stories of being on zoom calls with lawmakers and staffers and uh you know it's a lot less interesting than you'd think i mean i guess the other story is we we had the foos at the troubadour and um we had two days blocked out but we were hoping to get a shot in a day. And so they had a big production come in and, and we were there for, you know, f probably five, six hours load in stage was set. Um, you know, they were still tuning some stuff up, but the band wasn't there yet. Um, and we lost power. We ended up, um, having tried to find a generator. Um, you know, we we're burning daylight, but, you know, found a generator, um, took, a, you know, an hour, two hours to get the generator there. Generator shows up. We, the only place to park the generator at the Troubadour is in the back alley, which is a thorough alley. So people do drive through it. And sure enough, we didn't, I don't know if we didn't or they forgot, I can't remember, but we didn't get cable ramps. And so couldn't put the, we couldn't put it out there until they drove back, you know, an hour away and an hour back. So we lost an entire day. Um, and, you know, foods didn't come. And luckily they like had an anticipated something potentially. Um, and so they come back the next day and do it. But they were, I mean, Dave, all of them are just sweet, sweet people. And I mean, Dave especially has been our champion for independent venues since the start of this. So he's on our, you know, advisory board 
um, and he's will do anything for us. And you know, he, we're ultimately grateful. You know, Miley Miley was stoked to be. I mean, it was her choice to do the whiskey. She was really excited to to get back to her roots, but also the roots of those venues and who else has come up through those rooms. Um, people were really, really excited about that. So, I mean, uh, eventually like the Save Our Stages Act passed. I mean, obviously the story is not over because like the money's not in the bank. Uh, so, I mean, there's still a journey ahead as even as, as we're recording this, but like maybe you can take me back to the moment when you knew it was gonna pass, like how did it feel? Or were you like always positive that this would pass? No, I mean, it came out that it was a long shot. I mean, when it first, when we, when it first got announced that John Cornyn and Amy Klobuchar were introducing this bill, you know, a lot of the feedback was like, oh, isn't that cute? They wrote a bill for you. Like, this is never going to happen, you know, like, but it's neat, you know? And we were just like, no, this is like survival. And like all these other groups didn't want to get behind it because they saw it as a long shot. And we went and pounded the pavement and we got over 200 members of Congress to sign on and um, it, in October, it passed in the first uh, in the House bill of the Heroes Act bill that ended up not half passing, but and it passed in the Heroes Act. And when it passed in the hero in the House bill and got thrown to the Senate, everyone turned their heads and went, "What? This got passed? The House passed this thing?" You know. And from then, it was like, "Okay, now." Then it felt like it was gonna happen. Then it was, "We've got to get in this the final bill." And you know, when after the election and they started renegotiating and coming back, it was like, they're going to cut half of this out. We've got to stay in the half that doesn't get cut out. And in the final bill, we were the only industry specific bill in there, uh, with the exception of the post office. It was the post office and us were the only two industry specific pieces in that final bill, you know, and everyone said we couldn't. So, um, yeah, fun. When we did a big Zoom call the night it passed the uh, the Senate, you know, we all think each you know finished our own bottle of whatever libation was in front of us. Um, uh, it, you know, that felt it felt like there was hope. You know, and so to get all these people together to work on you know, and people in their same markets, people that I compete with on a regular basis, you know, are now very close friends and people that we, you know, you know, fought together to, to save each other. And so it, that, that, that is a silver lining that was really, really amazing. And something that I know I'll never forget. Five months later, we're still waiting for the money to flow. It still has not gone to anybody. So um, we've now all been able to apply. There's an application. Everyone's applied for it and we're just waiting for it to get processed. So we're hoping in the next week or two, that they'll actually finally start hitting venues bank accounts. It's a big pro. It's a big program. The go- the government has never done a program like this ever before, and so it's a lot. A lot of moving pieces. Very complicated. We're an industry that the SBA doesn't understand. You know, like that was one of the problems. Is there's no definitions written around our business. You know, how do you define a venue? Those I helped write the language that's neva's membership rules that became the language that's in this bill and it's like the no one in government understands our business we've never been you know it's like if you want to talk about farming you know the government knows how to talk about farming if you want to talk about manufacturing the government knows how to talk about manufacturing if you want to talk about education they know how to talk about education 
they don't know how to talk about us. They, it's never been, um, you know, part of the vocab the way it is now. So what's next for, uh, for Neva? Like, does Neva kind of fade away or, or is there still a future or use for it going forward? No, and so much of the work I've been doing at Neva uh, is the laying the groundworks for an organization that lasts. And, you know, we're working on a lot of fun things, you know, going to do a conference at some point in future, not this year, but next year we're working on the starting to work on a conference, starting to work on other issues, or we're organizing a chapter system of local, local organizations under us to help on more localized issues, work on sound issues or zoning or whatever local issues affect venues. And we started a foundation to do, to run the ERF, the National Independent Venue Foundation. That's the, this 501c3 nonprofit. And they're working on developing education programs and job training programs and, you know, uh, that. And then the big one I'm excited about is really merging because from day one, Neva's included both nonprofit and for-profit members. And so really bridging the gap in the arts world between the for-profit venues and the nonprofit venues. And, you know, I think a lot of the times the difference is really your tax status and not how you operate. And sometimes people treat it differently. And so I think there's a big divide between nonprofit arts venues and, and art centers and for-profit. And really there's not a lot of difference other than the tax status and so bridging some of that gap and bringing some of that community together um i think is a big one how can both sides advocate for the arts more effectively it took so many people and the you know our fans were look our fans the fans of these independent venues sent millions of letters to Congress over a very short period of time. Um, we would not be able to do this without them. The artist community was gave us so much and donated so much of their time and did their own mini fundraisers. I mean, um, we, we feel very, uh, you know, I think I can speak for us as an organization. We feel very, very lucky and grateful. Um, to have this community that, that supported us during this. And, and um, you know, uh, I wish I could give out guest lists for life to everybody, but, but like, um, we need some money. So, um, but I can't wait to see everyone back at shows. If you haven't seen it, you really owe it to yourself to watch SOS Fest. It's all streaming on YouTube. The Miley Cyrus performance alone is everything you've heard and more. As we're recording this, many venues are still waiting on funds to be released. So Neva is still accepting donations to help the most at-risk venues stay afloat just a little bit longer. You can find links to donate to Neva, as well as the SOS performances on our website, front page at front.com backslash blog.